welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. This is the second part in our four-part series with Joe Renazizi, who for over a decade was the front man in the government's battle against the opioid epidemic. As head of the Office of Diversion Control for the DEA, He was responsible for cracking down on doctors, pharmacies, drug manufacturers, and distributors who did not follow the nation's prescription drug laws. As we begin, Mr. Renazizi shares why the passage of the Ensuring Patient Access and Effective Drug Enforcement Act was a game-changer in diversion control for the DEA. The act basically changed the definition of imminent danger. It changed the definition for uh, immediate suspension order. And and what Congress did was they basically said that it's no longer an imminent danger. It's an immediate threat, an immediate threat, danger to. And, and while proving an immediate threat is fairly easy, a lot more difficult, but but easier at the doctor and pharmacy level it was it was impossible at the manufacturer and distributor level why is it was that? virtually impossible because they're upstream and while they supply to pharmacies they could be two to three days away from or longer from from getting their drugs to the pharmacy and then on the shelf the pharmacist hands the drug to the patient. The doctor prescribes the drug and hands a prescription to the patient. But the manufacturer and distributors are upstream. So there's nothing immediate about that distribution. Too far removed. Yeah, they're too far removed. So what this bill did was protect two segments of the delivery chain. And it just so happens that distributors were heavily engaged in lobbying Congress as the manufacturers to get this bill through. So to protect their interests, the, the thing that I couldn't understand was, and I know that the pharmacists and the doctors have their own lobbyists and lawyers, why a pharmacist association or, or medical associations would agree to this nonsense because it afforded no protections to them, yet they were on board with it. And I think they got hoodwinked because I think this bill was sold to them saying it's going to protect everybody from these DEA actions. When in reality, the only people it protected were upstream pharmacists, uh, manufacturers and distributors. But at that point in time, the pharmacists were also, the pharmacies were taking major hits. We were, we were taking administration straight of action against pharmacists and pharmacies. And we were doing a lot of cases against doctors and prescribers. If a distributor does not want to comply with the act, if he's making these egregious uh, 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 deliveries downstream, they're not doing due diligence, not filing suspicious orders, and creating a, an environment of danger in communities because of this, well, we could stop it right then and there. I'm joined for commentary on this episode by Pat Beal, award-winning journalist from the Palm Beach Post. 
Over the last four years, Pat has reported extensively on the opioid epidemic. You kind of want to look at what distributors were doing when uh, ISOs were um, were actually uh, much, much more of a threat. And, and it, it kind of staggers the imagination to... Um, uh, to suggest that uh, distributors did not know what was going on, you know, because one of the arguments, of course, for this legislation was, you know, we need uh, we need firmer standards. We need some sort of bright line that tells us when we've gone over the line. And and you know, and to that we would I could give you all kinds of examples. Um, there's a Walgreens drug distribution center in Jupiter. And at one point, they sent like 2.2 million tablets of oxy uh, to um, a single pharmacy in Hudson, Florida. Um, and that was roughly a six-month supply for each of Hudson's 12,000 residents. And then... And there was a period of 40 days starting in late 2010 um, when the same distribution center shipped something like 327,000 doses, about 3,200 bottles of Oxy to a single Walgreens pharmacy. And the distribution manager asked, well, how can they even house this many bottles? And and that's a really good question um, because they weren't housing them. They were selling them, first of all. And, and in fact, they kept right on selling them. So the the issue of doing anything that is going to slow down the ability of the DEA to act immediately um, is, is really problematic. One key member of Congress who really kind of led the way in passage of this bill was Tom Marino. Can you give us a little perspective on his home state and the opioid epidemic and what you've learned? Pennsylvania in 2011, um, you had, um, uh, I guess, the rate of uh, deaths involving uh, prescription opioids and also the benzodiazepines, I believe it was below 4%. Actually, I think it was below 4% all the way up until about 2012. And, and then in 2016, though, that rate um, had risen by 94%, um, and I believe it was right at 7%, maybe a, a little bit more. And so what that tells you is that, you know, even though the congressman was pushing um, you know, a, um, a piece of legislation that could damp the DEA's ability to um, uh, to address diversion and and keep these and keep these very dangerous pills um, off the streets. You know, the um, the death rate from those same pills um, was rapidly rising in his in his home state. And the, the tools that you use, one of the tools that you used to, uh, to analyze that and then ultimately determine whether or not you needed to stop it was the Arcos system of reporting. Is that right? Yes. Unfortunately, the, the Arcos system was created by statute under 827, and it's a, it's a very good system. The problem is it's always behind. It's always retrospective. Before we get to that, can you put Arcos in perspective for us, Mr. Sure. Lanzizi? Arcos is a, is, a, is a system that records every transaction, schedule uh, two controlled substances and three narcotics. So every controlled substance that's coming downstream 
is recorded by Arcos. So the distributors put all of the orders into Arcos, and then you get access to Arcos. So you know all of the thing that's flowing, everything that's flowing downstream, as you call it. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, yes. But if you notice with the distributors, there's there's one glaring, glaring uh, omission, and that is uh, the benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines and, and opioids go hand in hand. Uh, a lot of the drug seekers... That, that are on opioids are also taking benzodiazepines. And one of the things we didn't have was the benzodiazepine data because under 827, benzodiazepines were not included uh, for, for distributors. Wow. So, Is that still the case? Yes. I didn't we've, asked them, we've asked Congress to change that numerous occasions dating back to 2008 or nine. I asked Pat about the significance of the fact that benzodiazepines are not included in the ARCOS report? Well, it matters, first of all, because benzos and opioids um, are longtime companions, I guess you would have to say. Um, and benzos are extraordinarily dangerous. Um, I know that um, Florida uh, mortality numbers involving drug deaths show that in 2017, there were more than 5,000 lethal overdoses in Florida where benzos were um, found in the deceased. And in 2013, that was about 4,300. And that, so it's been, you know, um, it's been um, pretty, uh, pretty steady, but it is also a very large number. Um, and benzos almost never uh, actually kill the person. It's usually the combination of benzos with another drug, in particular an opioid, um, that is especially lethal. Um, you know, heroin users um, have been combining heroin uh, with benzos for a very long time. And we also had lots of examples here in Florida where you would have an individual who would walk out of one of our uh, pill mills. You know, I think, I think one example was they had uh, prescriptions for more than 700 pills, and that was not only for oxycodone and methadone, um, but also for Xanax as well. Alprazolam, clonazepam, and diazepam, those three drugs, uh, those three benzos, uh, pretty much control the marketplace when it comes to you know, abuse. And uh, we asked Congress on multiple occasions to change 827 to allow us to, to, to force the, and then, you know, again, uh, Congress doesn't want to listen to their, their, um, uh, the specialists, the, the experts in drug diversion. They'd rather listen to the industry. And, and those are certainly uh, a big part of this crisis that we have. They go hand absolutely. in hand with the opioids. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've got and, another tool that uh, you utilize, though, that I, th I believe does include those, and that is these distributors, again, they're required to self-report also, right? Anomalies, that is. Oh, and yes. Yeah, suspicious the, the, the order. Suspicious order reporting, yes. Mm -hmm. And, um, again, suspicious order reporting uh, was done multiple ways. So, some, some companies reported... Uh, some of their suspicious orders, but but not all of them. Some reported no suspicious orders. They didn't think any of their deliveries were suspicious. Some reported all of their orders as suspicious. They just sent, you know, some reported excessive purchases. So so it was all over the board, and that's why we sat down with them in 2005 and tried to rein them all in. 
Remember, the suspicious order reporting requirement was, I I think it was promulgated somewhere in the early 70s, but it was in place for over 40 years. So it's not something new. It's not something like, oh, my God, they just threw this at us. This has been in place for over 40 years. So when we look at the suspicious order requirement, uh, it it makes it (laughs) it's just common sense that if it's part of the regulation, you, you need to comply with it, especially when it's tied back to that 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 term maintaining effective controls against diversion. So if you're not complying, you're not maintaining effective controls and you expose yourself to uh, administrative action. So I looked this up and in 2011, the top five states for that year uh, total, the total number of suspicious orders that were reported from them, so that the top five states, grand total, 93. Fast forward to 2015, the same same thing, top five states, 86,503 suspicious orders. Big change in that. Yeah, it just tells me that they weren't taking the suspicious order reporting requirement seriously. And um, even even in the face of uh, administrative action, loss of license, revocation of license, they, they just didn't because I guess they felt that um, the the uh, if they get caught, the the end justified the means because they were making a lot of money. But if we so, go back over this timeline, kind of they get educated way back in 2005 on this stuff. And yeah, okay, and it was continuing. Really, really important, really, really important. We fast forward up to then 2011. You think everybody's going to be on board and even the top states for reporting 93 total with all five states. And then finally, you go uh, four years later to 2015 and it jumps from 93 all the way up to 86,000. Something happened in there, and it wasn't the education. And I'm just kind of curious in terms of what. And again, I, you might not be able to speak to that, but just that's just a curious thing. Well, I guess in in 2012 was uh, we again started. Or 2011, we started doing cases against uh, the distributors again. It wasn't like we weren't doing cases against the distributors, but uh, as we saw these patterns emerge and as we saw the, the, um, the volumes going downstream again, we started looking at the distributors. You know, the distributors always say you should look at Arcos. The Arcos will tell you everything. Well, first of all, Arcos is retrospective. It's, it's, I, I don't want to know what happened six months ago. I want to know what happens, what's happening now. The and data is six a, months old for that? Yeah, because what happens is, is they could submit, depending on the distributor or the manufacturer, monthly or quarterly, and we have to validate that information. So if they submit it on quarterly, it takes you know, two months to validate. So, so if you think about it, that information, by the time it gets validated information, gets into the computer, um, it's done. Why does it take two months to validate it? Because we find a lot of errors in the reporting. Arcos is reported by, you know, by weight. I I could think of one instance where a company misreported fentanyl sales. They were reporting it uh, by, uh, uh, I think it was milligrams. And and Arcos uh, is, is, and fentanyl is being, is, dosed in micrograms 
So when, when, when the, the validators were looking at that, they were like, Whoa, why is this state getting so much, or why is this distributor sending so much fentanyl out? And see, that's, they have to look, they have to make sure that the information that they're sending out to the field, to the investigators is correct. So it takes a while to make sure. And that information comes in. Everybody just doesn't send it in all at once. Here it is. Uh, They're all over the board. So there's all of these manufacturers and distributors sending in this information into Arcos. And there's people who are looking at it to make sure it's thing. And then it goes out into the system. And the system then is provided to the investigators who get a chance to look at it. But by then, all all those drugs are being sent downstream. So if the distributor is doing the right thing if he's reporting or better still if he's seeing suspicious orders and not sending the drug downstream because it's suspicious then you you you're you're helping DEA you know find the problems you're helping and and you're limiting the amount of drug going downstream you know th- this this idea that well, this is suspicious, but I'm shipping it downstream anyway, is not maintaining effective controls against diversion. They should know that. And that's exactly what that report revealed in case after case. Yeah. They're not reporting it. They're, they're, um, they're detecting it and shipping it. And yeah. then later on, six months later, as you say, it shows up in the Arcos report. But they, don't, they, they still ship on these things that are obviously you know, bogus. Yeah, and that's, and that's what we're dealing with. Uh, Remember, as we started with, the Controlled Substances Act is a system of checks and balances. People always say, well, you can't expect us to police the, the, uh, uh, the supply chain. I said, I don't expect you to police the supply chain, but I do expect you to police your own customers. They're your customers. They're not the supply chain customers. They're your customers. So you have a responsibility to maintain effective controls against diversion against your customers. So okay. they weren't doing that, and in between 2007 and 2008, uh, there was a number of suits that were brought forth to the three largest distributors, uh, uh, wholesale distributors, among others. There was others there. Yeah, there but, were others. Um, um, but you put, as part of the settlement, you put a memorandum agreements in place to strictly govern their compliance. So moving forward, what happened? Uh, did they comply? Well... I don't know exactly when they they stopped complying, uh, but I could tell you that when we were looking at these distributors again in 2011, 12, 13, we found that they weren't complying. Despite having settlement agreements in place, the committee found that the three largest wholesale drug distributors in the United States, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson sent more than 900 million doses of hydrocodone and oxycodone to West Virginia between 2005 and 2016. They continued to distribute, um, and they weren't, uh, they, they weren't filing the suspicious orders, or if they were filing the suspicious orders, they were filing suspicious orders and sending the drugs downstream. They, they had... Uh, huge quantities of of oxycodone. I'm not talking about mixed drugs. I'm talking about just oxycodone going into small independent flor- uh, pharmacies in Florida, in chain drug stores in Florida. Um, and, and no one was, no one was minding the store. Meanwhile, we had small pharmacies in the Midwest uh, that were receiving huge quantities of oxycodone, hydrocodone products. There was no, uh, uh, 
if there was a suspicious order filed, uh, it didn't matter because they were going to figure a way to get the drugs downstream. And it, it just was, again, the same issue, only this time it was pharmacy facilitating medical clinics, uh, these, these quote-unquote rogue pain clinics that were popping up all over the place. Uh, and instead of hydrocodone now, it was oxycodone. And it was large quantities of oxy. They were getting prescriptions for large quantities of oxy with alprazolam and, and, and other drugs. And it was just, it didn't, it didn't stop under, under an MOA. Un, while you were under a memorandum of agreement, a memorandum of understanding, you continued to ship these drugs. So you took action. In yes. 2013, you took action against distribution centers in Aurora, Colorado, Livonia, Michigan, Lakeland, Florida, and in Texas as well. And you shut them down. Immediate suspension. Well, some were immediate suspension. Some were, um, uh, or some were immediate suspension. Some were to show cause, and some were just uh, uh, pursuant to a civil agreement. They were, they're, uh, they're, uh, they shut down their operations. Yes, but that's what happened. Yeah. So I'm going to speculate here. At that point, this is 2013. Uh, you with these shutdowns and um, orders to show cause, you kicked a hornet's nest with uh, the big business there, all these distributors. And um, suddenly, over the course of the next couple of years, uh, the your environment that you worked in kind of changed. And again, I'm speculating here. But um, let's go down that road. During this time period, we were also involved in Congress would launch investigations on the diversion control program. Like one investigation was on our quota system. Uh, this is now the investigation was launched, not because uh, we were uh, as I thought, if anything, they were going to launch the investigation because our, our quota were in their I could see how a person from the outside looking in would say, well, why are you issuing all this quota? Um, and, you know, I had perfectly good explanation for it. it was within the statute. But they were launching the they launched an investigation on DEA quotas, not because there was too much. They felt that DEA was causing shortages and we should issue more quota. According to the DEA, the quota process in general terms is a critical element in the regulatory system that seeks to prevent or limit diversion by preventing the accumulation of controlled substances in amounts exceeding legitimate need. We struggled with that because we were we were at the limit for quota. We, we were issuing right by the, the act. Can we define the quota and how that comes about just a, a, a little bit more there? So quota is based upon the historical run rate, the shipping in general. So you give that back to manufacturers to determine now how much they can be producing of one of these of these substances. Is that about right? Yeah, a manufacturer has issued quota based on downstream sales uh, and then, you know, testing, evaluation, uh, any kind of research they're doing. Uh, so, but for the most part, uh, quota is based on and 21 U.S.C. 826, which kind of provides a roadmap for how we determine quota. Congress tells us how to determine quota. So we 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 provide an amount of quota that could be manufactured. Uh, at the at the highest level of the chain, the manufacturer, the raw material manufacturer, and then based on that quota, 
each individual tablet or dosage form manufacturer could go in and draw from that that quota. They were trying to put the blame on DEA. And it's very easy to say, well, all DEA has to do is cut the quota. The problem is, is you just can't cut a quota. In a quota system, say there's a hundred, we'll just come up with a number, a hundred kilograms of a certain, of oxycodone, the basic class, which is what we set quota in, basic class. A hundred kilograms of oxycodone in the basic class form is the quota. Uh, and and that's based on downstream sales for the most part. So if I know that 100 kilograms is the quota and that's what's going to cover all of the downstream sales and all the research and everything else, uh, and I cut the quota, just cut it by 80, by 20%, say, well, that sounds like a great idea. But remember, you're, you have drug seekers competing with real live patients for that quota. Now, I couldn't really care if the drug seekers didn't get their drug. But if you have an oncology patient or palliative care patient or somebody who really needs that drug and he's not getting it or she's not getting it, I haven't done my job under 826. So it sounds like a great idea to just cut quota by 20%. But unless you cut the prescribing habits to, to, to drug seekers and, 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 uh, patients with bad behavior, okay, you're, you're never going to have an adequate quota for the real patients because eventually some real patients are not going to get their medicine because there's going to be shortages. And that's what I tried to explain to Congress over and over again. But when they came back and said, well, you're causing drug shortages, that was a whole new, I mean, I was like, are you, are you kidding me? How could we be causing drug shortages? And it, that's that's what I couldn't understand. That's why I knew there was industry influence in Congress because they were they were coming up with 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 investigations that made no sense. There was another investigation where we were investigated for not adequately um, uh, communicating with with industry. They, with all the violations and all the sit downs and everything we did, they actually launched an investigation GAO. And, and mind you, every one of these investigations, we found serious flaws in it. And when they were brought to the attention of GAO, they just didn't want to hear it. Uh, GAO? The uh, Government Accounting Office. Okay. Accountability Office, whatever they're called now. But so – in, in fact, in the quota report, if you look at my response, I point out flaws in their reporting. Uh, they have to, they had to publish my response. They don't have a choice. Uh, but in the report, I pointed out flaws in their reporting. But it didn't matter because Congress got what they wanted. Uh, the headlines read, well, DEA quota causes shortages. As we close out this episode of our four-part series with former Diversion Control Leader Joe Renazzisi, we preview our next episode. Why would a committee listen to somebody that no longer is with DEA? Uh, I, I, I can't understand that. And, and This is a person who's now working for the industry who's, who's telling a committee uh, or, or, or providing his opinion – uh, to a committee about what DEA needs. And that's just outrageous. 
Join us next time for part three of our conversation with Joe Renazizi, the former head of diversion control for the DEA, as he shares the frustration over the department's battles with Congress. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.